Priyanka and I, and I think Haven, we've had a great time, and we just want to say thank you for your hospitality. I know there's a, a, a few different assemblies represented this evening, but um, everywhere we've been has just been, it's been home. It's been really sweet, and, uh, and though I know the rest of you haven't been experiencing it, Luke and Lana took really good care of us as well. So we are just very thankful for every aspect of... Um, of this time. And we do head out quite early in the morning. I think we have to be at FLL by 5.30. So um, some early flights tomorrow, but we just want to say thank you for your care and thank you for your prayers. Now, as we approach just this final time together, and some of you we've been together for about five or six different um, times over the course of the last few days, Certainly, it hasn't been a series, per se, as we've had a couple different topics being addressed, but I did want tonight to be, in some way or another, a bookend, because as you know, um, if there are not two bookends, uh, you have a bit of a collapsing uh, set of books, and I really want us to leave with a tangible conclusion for the weekend. So even if you've only heard one message, or maybe you've heard none, uh, I do think that tonight will be a, a very appropriate ending for this particular time. Uh, also, specifically at Boulevard, not at, um, not at Bible Truth and uh, not at any other assembly, we ha- we've been addressing lessons from Elisha's life. Now, over the course of the last couple of years, I've spoken on Elisha multiple times, but the fun thing about it is uh, there's so many stories from Elisha, so we kind of get to kind of keep on uh, adding in these in-between details. At my home assembly, I don't know how long the series is going to go because... They kind of just get it story by story, so I'm kind of expecting the Lord to come back before that finishes. I certainly hope he comes back tonight, and so I'm not being facetious or joking about that. I'm serious. But in the life of Elisha, there is uh, there is a significant ending, which I want to briefly address in the will of the Lord, and we're going to find that in 2 Kings chapter 13. Now, the reason I kind of chose the ending was because we were together on Thursday night, at least some of us. And we looked at the very beginning of Elisha's, uh, I don't want to say ministry, but mention in scripture because it's when he was called. So tonight, let's look at the last story in his earthly ministry, although he is mentioned again uh, in the New Testament, but we'll, we'll just leave it here tonight. So this is where, let's say, it comes to a conclusion. Now, we're going to read uh, the, this portion beginning in verse 14. But I want to kind of set the stage. Elisha is dying of a disease. Now, we don't know what disease it is, but I just want to make mention of this prior to reading the passage because I find a strange sort of comfort in what's going on here. Think about it. Elisha, the one who the Lord used to orchestrate more miracles than any other Old Testament prophet. Okay, I mean... How you want to count miracles, whatever. The point being is, Elisha was greatly used by the Lord. And yet, one of the aspects of his ministry was seeing people even raised from the dead. And yet, here he is dying of a disease. I just want to make mention that we live in a very broken world. And we understand that. We understand that we live in a world with disease and heartache and sorrow. But it's important as well for us not to buy into the theology which is being promoted many places. And I even hear it at times in assemblies, especially when I uh, had the privilege of walking through cancer. I started to hear it a lot that no sickness is ever of the will of the Lord. Listen, 
I'm not saying that sickness was in the original design of the way that the Lord created things, no. But I am saying that the Lord uses these things to eventually call us home, but he also uses these things to glorify his name. So Elisha is walking through a very um, difficult part of his journey. He's sick. He's dying. And this is where we pick up the story. And there are some very important lessons, three specifically that we're going to look at this evening. And uh, and I'm not watching the clock because I, I think that we'll probably finish a few minutes early here. But verse 14. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father! the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hand on the king's hand. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Father, your word, and we pray that as we open it this evening, you would Help us avoid walking down distracting points, walking down elements that just don't need to be shared. And certainly we pray you would keep us from those things which, simply put, are not even good for us. So, Lord, I pray that you would just control everything that goes on in this place from the word spoken to the hearts that receive it. I pray that Jesus would get all the glory. And Lord, I pray that we would respond and be different, reflecting the Lord Jesus as we leave this place. We pray it all in his name. Amen. All right, so here we are, final episode. Uh, I want us just to begin by noticing that this king wants a final word from Elisha. In other words, he realizes that there's been a a, a special time of God communicating through this prophet. And so the first point I just want us to, to, to focus on for a few minutes is this. We must seize the opportunity. 
seize the opportunities that are around us. Now, why do I mention it like that? Because we could be naive and think there's always tomorrow. We can, we can think, ah, oh, at a future time I'll do this or that. But the reality is God has put us in time. We operate in time. And in time, there are limited frames for many things. That's one reason I believe in Ephesians, Paul reminds us very clearly that we are to redeem the time because the days are evil. There are important things that the Lord has for us now. Now, I'm not saying God's plan is messed up when we don't act because I believe he's much bigger than that. But I do believe we miss out on the opportunity to be used of him in those moments. And so when we say seize the opportunity, what did Joash realize here? He realized that the king is going to die soon and it's now or never if he wants a final word from Elisha. And so he goes to him with a sense of urgency. There is a sense of, I must seize the opportunity that is right at hand. Now, I I love what goes on with this conversation because when he comes, he says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. And then look what Elisha says. He says, take a bow and arrows. The approach of Elisha, first of all, in answering this man that's coming to him looking for a final word is not one that's discouraging by saying, I want you to do something with something you don't have. But rather what we really see is we see a a picture being painted of him taking his bow. In other words, what's in your hand right now? And when we think about seizing the opportunities before us, I want us to understand that when God works with us, God starts with the things that we have. God starts with the things that are right before us. We see this back in Exodus chapter 4. And, and remember when Moses is, um, Moses is, has been called. He's already been called. And he's trying to get out of it, right? And then in chapter 4, you come down to verse 2. And God says to him, what's in your hand? And do you remember what he said? He said, a staff. That's good. So then that staff... He starts to use it to, to test out a couple, um, let's just say, signs before Pharaoh that he may or may not use. But then as you keep going down that passage, it was just a staff, right? After God has this conversation with Moses about that it's not his power, it's God's power. Who made your mouth? You're going to notice, I think it's verse 17. It says, Moses headed out. And do you know what it says? This is amazing. It doesn't say a staff anymore. It starts to talk about, uh, well, down in verse 20, it says, he went out with the staff of God. Now that's powerful because that tells me that when the story started, it was just a staff. But by the time we get to the middle of that story, Moses is not just carrying a staff, he's carrying the staff of God. And I just throw this out there for us to understand that when God, when when we approach him, when we say, Lord, I want to live in the moments that you've given me, I want to redeem the time. Don't think for a moment that God says, well, I've got to put you on the shelf for a while because right now I just can't use you. The Lord always picks us up where we're at. No, he might not having us do the job that we wanted to do, but he will employ us where we're at in the sense that he picks us up and walks with us. There's this idea oftentimes that if I'm going to be used by God, I have to get to a certain point and then I can be used by God. 
first of all, that defies logic because you can't even get to that point without his divine intervention in your life. But I just want to encourage you that if you are one of those that say, I want to seize the opportunity. I want God to use my life now. Yeah, I might only be 10 years old, but I want God to use my life right now. He wants to. He's more willing than you are willing. But the question is, Will we offer him what we have? And in this case, Elisha just starts out with drawing a bow. And again, there's symbolism here, but I appreciate the fact that he's just taking what's right before him. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. Pause there. The second thing I want us just to notice after the fact that we are called to seize the opportunity And this is so important. We're going to focus here for a few minutes. The next thing we have is we must see the victory. We must see the victory. When it comes to walking in God's way, when it comes to seizing the opportunities before us, it is vital that we can see the victory. We're going to see here that he says, open the window eastward. He's literally looking at the, 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 well, the direction to where his enemies lie. The, well, let's say where the battle's being fought. And we're going to see at the end that, that the victory is theirs, but ultimately it's limited because of the, the response of the king here. But it's important for us as believers to have our eyes on the victory. I didn't say on the victory we're going to win. I want to say on the victory that's already been won. This is very important. You see, we don't fight for victory in the Christian life. We fight from victory in the Christian life. An illustration that I think really brings it out clearly, um, and for those of you that are going to be at 26 below in a couple of weeks, uh, you may hear this illustration again, but growing up, uh, not growing up, living in Niger, um, uh, for five years, my house did not have electricity when I moved in. And uh, that's fine. I, I, got, I grew quite accustomed to it. But what I didn't grow accustomed to was when I finally had electricity hooked up. Because here's the thing about Niger and electricity. When, we finally had, when I finally had electricity hooked up, it was very irregular. So the electricity got cut off almost every day at certain points. And so uh, whether it was on or off, I just really never knew. But here's the other problem. The wiring in my house was absolutely pathetic. When I say pathetic, an American electrician checked it out once and he said, I've never seen wiring like this. I literally had fires in my wall. Fortunately, it's all a cement house, so it's just like little charred spots. But here's the thing. Because of my wiring, the breaker would pop frequently. Now, you have to understand something. When the breaker pops, you have to go reset the breaker. So, oftentimes, I would come home, and in coming home, uh, I would see, oh, there's no power in the house. And I would assume the power is off, a natural assumption. But oftentimes, the power wasn't off. It was just that my breaker had popped, But I assumed the power was off, so I didn't go outside and flip the breaker. I just assumed there was no power. Now, you have to understand, Niger is a very warm nation. When I say warm, I have a thermostat that goes up to 139.8 degrees, and it's gone off of that. You say, that's impossible. It's not. The sand radiates the heat. It's a cement house. It becomes like an oven. Warm is not even the word for you all, but I'll use the word warm. In the winter, we do drop down quite a bit. Like, it can get to the 70s in the dead of winter, Um, but... But a 90 degree morning is quite nice. Now, now, going back. So here I am in the house sweltering. 
I'm sweating. My devices are going dead because they need to be charged. The meat in my fridge is going bad because the fridge has been off for hours and hours and hours. And then very sheepishly, all of a sudden, it hits me. What if the power is not off? What if I've had power this whole time, but it's just the breaker? And I would walk outside more than once. And I would flip that breaker. And all of a sudden, the fans would come to life. The fridge would come back on. My devices would get a little battery, things starting up. And I thought, wow. I've been living without power when there was power the whole time. And you know, that's a perfect example, I think, of life for many believers. We live powerless Christian lives because we fail to see the victory that's already been won. It's almost as though we're fighting for victory. I see this all the time in the battle. I work a lot with young people and in the lives of many young men. There are issues like pornography and young women. You're right there within very similar issues. And it's like we're fighting, we're fighting, we're fighting, we're fighting. Instead of recognizing a battle has already been won. And the way ultimately to enjoy victory is not to be trying to fight for victory, but rather live from the victory that's already been won. And you're going to start to realize that you're on a mission, a pursuit, not an avoidance. You see, the reason that we so often dwell in sin is because we're always just trying to create a barricade and a barrier another defense mechanism, another filter. But if you're actually pursuing the mission, that's far behind you. So what is it? We must see the victory. We must see the victory. I want to go further into that, though. Because it's not just about seeing the victory. Like We have to understand what is this victory that's been won. Please, we've got to get this in our mind. Bose, you're good, but not there. Um, so think about this. This is, to me, thrilling. We, we, I think I alluded to it earlier in Ephesians chapter 1 this weekend, I'm saying, um, that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All right, so take that, set it aside. Now go back to Joshua in your mind. In the book of Joshua, when the children of Israel come in and take the land, okay, God specifically allots the borders of the land. So you can go in there and you can literally draw a box around the borders of the land. And by the way, it's far more than what we see being occupied today. But the borders of the land. Now, here's what's fascinating about the, the area that God said would belong to them between the rivers. When they went in to conquer it, the amount of land that has been occupied to this day the most that's ever been occupied by Israel, I believe 10% of what God said is theirs, is the most they've ever occupied at one time. Now, hang on. In other words, the land that they actually took was very little compared to the land that was actually given. But now, if you read the book of Deuteronomy... When you read Joshua, what kind of language does God use? He says, the land that I am giving you, the land that I am giving you, not the land you're taking, the land that I am giving you. In other words, God already won the battle. It's already his and he's giving it to you. 
So now take that example in Joshua, apply it spiritually. How often do we do the exact same thing? God says he's given all of this, this victory. He hasn't just won the victory of our salvation. That's beautiful. I'm so thankful that I'm going to spend eternity face to face with Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that I get to be part of his eternal kingdom. I'm so thrilled that I've been invited into intimacy with my creator. But that doesn't just start in eternity. See, even now, I'm seated in the heavenlies according to Ephesians chapter 2. Even now, I can enjoy the blessings of that life in Christ. And yet, when I look at my life, I think this is pathetic. That I am choosing to occupy so little of the land that God has given me in Christ. He says, open the window eastward, see. Now, this is important to see it first. See the victory. See the victory that's been won. Well, let's take this to another level. You're going to have the week of prayer here soon. And the Lord has really been challenging my thoughts on prayer. And let me just share one aspect involving seeing the victory. There is a verse in scripture that might it might be a struggle for you at times. And I think it won't be after just a couple minutes. First Thessalonians in chapter 5 It tells us to pray without ceasing. Have you ever struggled with that thought? What does it mean to pray without ceasing? How do I pray without ceasing? I actually think it's connected to this very thought of seeing the victory. Pray without ceasing. Well, one fundamental issue we have with prayer and the discussion on prayer is we assume that prayer means talking. Now, prayer involves talking. But even Jesus warns us not to talk too much when you're praying. (laughs) How does it all work? Well, the word for prayer used mostly in the Gospels when Christ is speaking of prayer is the word prosukomai. And really, when you break down that word, the idea is to turn our face toward God. Well, hang on a second. If I'm turning my face toward God... I might pre- I might talk while I'm turning my face toward God, but I also might not talk while I'm turning my face toward God. But the point is I'm turning my face toward God. I'm looking at him. In Psalm 32, verse 8, uh, the Lord says he will guide us with his eyes. If you're going to guide me with your eyes, I really have to be fixed on your face. It's the same thing true with the way the Lord guides us. If we want to live in the victory already won, if we want to occupy the land that God has given us in Christ, if we want to see the victory moment by moment, we do need to pray without ceasing. But praying without ceasing is keeping our face fixed on him. You say, what does that look like? It doesn't mean you're in the prayer closet all the time. Yes, there ought to be those intimate, constant, deep communion moments with the Lord. But it means that when I walk out of the prayer closet, when I talk to you, I still have my eyes fixed on the Lord saying, Lord, what would you say? Lord, what are you thinking about these thoughts? When I read the news, am I putting it through the filter? of forever? Am I putting it through the filter of the word of God? Am I putting it through the filter of God's glory? When I eat or when I drink or whatever I do, am I doing it all to the glory of God? You see, that's a prayer life because prosukomai, I'm fixing my eyes on God and I'm walking moment. I'm not saying I am. I'm saying this is what ought to be. I'm walking moment by moment, praying without ceasing. See the victory. Do you, my brother, my sister, do you live seeing the victory that's won? 
I'll tell you the time when I absolutely don't believe that a lot of Christians in this country see the victory. Watch them on the Wednesday after elections in November. You would think they lost. (laughs) You would think their primary citizenship is here. You would think that their hope was here. It's amazing the depression that hits churches when a candidate doesn't win. Last time I checked, the Lord is still on the throne and he's not up for election. Last time I checked, the victory is eternally his. And he will reign forever. What would happen if we saw the victory? Well, I do believe that there would be a lot more confidence to take his word at face value and walk wholeheartedly forward. Even last night, Mike gave a whole list of things to at the youth meeting. I say youth meeting because it was definitely a um, very uh, liberal definition of youth. Uh, but he gave us a great list of, of things to consider. And they're just from the word of God. We would confidently do those things if we believed that we already have the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we can sing, oh, victory in Jesus all day. But when the world starts to say, wow, you, you've already got it, <laughs> they're going to want it. So with that being said, see the victory. Let me ask a question here. Uh, well, let, before I ask the question, I want you to notice something. Um, he had to open a window. I, I think that's interesting too, opening a window, because ultimately what that tells me is it tells me that there was um, a blocked perspective going on. And I just want to challenge uh, each one of us. Are you staring at a wall when God wants you to open a window? Think about this. Are you staring at a wall? Are you just kind of like in this place where you're like, God, you've got to work here. You've got to do this right here. And God says, open the window. I want you to see the broad picture of what I'm up to. We've been talking about that all weekend. We've been talking about the mission of God. Are some of you so insisting that God's got to work with your little dreams and plans When he says, wow, I just want you to see what I'm up to. Open the window. See the real battle. See where it's, where it has been won and how you can live in that victory. But now we come to the part I really want to leave you with. This is the reason that this passage was on my heart to start with. All of that, that leads us to this point. Seize the opportunity, see the victory. But notice what goes on here before I give you the point. He says, open the window eastward. He opens it. Elisha says, shoot. He shot. And then he says this thing about the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. And then he says, take the arrows. And Joash takes them. And then he says to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And he strikes three times and stops. All right, pause. Everybody with me? All right. I need you to work with me here, okay? Because we're going to process this together. This is so important. And I pray you'll never forget I'm going to share with you some of, in my opinion, the most sobering words in scripture. Okay. Not yet, but we're going to get there and they're right. You've already read them. They're in the story. So here we go. All right. You tell me what happens here. Elisha says, take a bow. So what does Joash do? You can, you can talk. He takes a bow. All right. Then he actually says, take a bow and arrows. Then he says, draw the bow. What does Elijah, what does Joash do? He draws the bow. Then he says, open the window eastward. What does Joash do? 
Opens the window eastward. We're going to get more and more voices each time here. Then he says, shoot. What does Joash do? Shoots. Then he says, take the arrows. What does Joash do? Then he says, strike the ground with them. What does Joash do? But then, yeah. But then it says, Joash stopped. What did Elisha never say? Stop. Did you notice that whole A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, B? This is a serious problem. You see, the tragedy in this story, and you're going to get the sobering statement in a minute, is this. Joash assumed the ending and he missed the opportunity. Uh, We're going to get to this in a minute, but the third point is set your mind. Set your mind. Seize the opportunity, see the victory, and set your mind. You see, when he says, now take these arrows and strike the ground with them, he doesn't say how many times, he just says strike the ground. Now, you can know that a quiver in that day would hold six to seven arrows, okay? Six to seven arrows. And and uh, I, I found that variant, so I'm just going to go with both those numbers. And if you take the math, if he had a full quiver, he shot one arrow, right? And then he says you should have struck five or six times. And so what happens here? Clearly what he's saying is you should have used your entire quiver, You should have used everything you have. Why did you stop? Let me ask a question. Please get this question in your mind. Is there something in your life where you stopped and God never told you to stop? Have you stopped and there was never, never a word from the Lord indicating you were supposed to stop? You got discouraged, so you stopped. People didn't like it, so you stopped. Your expectations weren't met, so you stopped. Did you give up when God was in it, but you lost courage? I want to encourage you tonight. Some of you still have arrows in your quiver that need to be struck on the ground. Until God says, stop, keep going. It doesn't have to look the way you think it should look. Faithfulness, obedience, that's what he's looking for. And yet Joash stops. And here we have one of the worst statements, I think, in the Bible. When I say worst, I don't mean it's worst because the Bible says it. I mean tragic. I pray I never hear this. I pray you don't either. Are you ready for this? It's right there. You've already read it. I'm going to have to take out a few words because it's going to fit your situation. But, but, but everybody, please focus in on verse 19. Are you ready? First, I'll read it and then I'll take out some. You'll, you'll get what I'm doing. You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. Now, read it again. You should have. Then you would have. You should have. Then you would have. We're going to say it a few more times here. You should have then you would have. Get this in your mind. This is the word of God. 
He, you should have kept going and you would have seen that fruit. You should have kept going. That person, I'm not blaming anyone here for somebody not being saved because God's far greater than that. But you should have, you would have seen what you were looking for. You should have, and I would have chosen to use you in that situation. I don't say this to make anyone feel bad because you're still alive. I don't think you're at the would have yet. You'll be at the would have if you keep ignoring the voice of God. You should have discipled that young woman. Then you would have seen this happen at Boulevard. My friends, the Lord is giving us another opportunity tonight to put our hand back on the plow, to start building that wall again, to get back to the work that he's called us to. And I don't know, have you stopped praying for somebody because you just don't see anything happening? Get back on your knees. Did you used to enjoy intimacy with God because you let the prayer closet become your daily dwelling place, but you just didn't see the results you were looking for? Get back in the prayer closet. Did you stop sharing with your friends because you just were being made fun of and it was hard and inconvenient and nothing seemed to be good happening? Get back to sharing. Was there a ministry that you were part of, but no one was showing up? Get back to it. I'm not, I'm not saying get back to it if the Lord told you to stop, but if he didn't tell you to stop, did you stop because of faults, because of expectations that weren't met? That's what I'm asking. I believe just like Elisha's life for 18 years of washing the hands of Elijah, most of us would have quit. The beginning of his life and the end of his life are very similar in its message. Perseverance. Why do you think Elisha got angry? I've wondered about this, but then I, I realized, oh, because of his story. Do you realize how many times in Elisha's story number seven is significant? I don't know how many times, quite a few times, but let me tell you one example of it. Do you remember when, when I talked about the 18 years? Okay, that's a long time. So then in 2 Kings chapter 2, finally, finally his name comes back up. When his name comes back up, do you know what's being said to him? Remember back in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, right? The first time uh, anybody speaks to him in the scripture, which is Elijah, Elijah says, like, what is that to me, basically? Like, he, he kind of discourages, in a sense, Elisha from following him. Doesn't encourage him, for sure. And just sort of like, do what you gotta do. That's the first time anybody talks to him. You know the second time anybody talks to him? Second Kings chapter 2, verse 2? It's when Elijah says, uh, you stay here. And Elisha says, no, I'm going on. Then the sons of the prophets say, time number 3, you know that God's going to take away Elijah from you? He says, yes, I know. Shut up. Number four, Elijah says, stay here. I'm going on. Number five, the sons of the prophets in another place say, uh, you know, Elijah's going to be taken from you, right? He says, yes, I know it. Shut up. Then number six, Elijah says, stay here. I'm going over the Jordan. And Elisha says, I'm going with you. It wasn't until the seventh time, finally, seventh time, finally, Elijah says, what do you want? He says, I want the double portion. The double portion. Seven times after 18 years and six rounds of discouraging comments, 
Elisha got the question he was looking for and he was ready. You see why he's angry at Joash? Because he sees a generation like our generation. A generation that gives up. They give up. Why? Not because God failed, but because the situation failed our expectations. See the victory. If you know the last chapter, if you know how it turns out, persevere. Keep running. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see him. One look on his dear face. All sorrows will erase. So gladly or bravely run the race till we see Christ. You know, that's a song that my mom oftentimes puts in notes when she sends me a note. Or back when I was single, she used to write me almost every day encouragement. And then she passed off to Priyanka. She's like, now it's your job to encourage him. But she would put that song in there so frequently. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. I'm telling you, set your mind that you will not stop until you see his face. There's more I could say on that, but frankly, I want to kind of pull into the station, let's say. My prayer for you is that you won't hear you could have than you would have. And I pray I won't either. Now, there's an illustration I want to share with you all as we kind of consider this closure to setting your mind. Maybe some of you have heard this illustration before because it came actually out of a book by James Dobson quite a few years ago. But I found the illustration very appropriate for my life because I, too, absolutely love the game of Monopoly. Um, I grew up playing Monopoly with my brother um, and sister, and I can tell you that the attitude I had on the board was a lot like this young man who was in this story right here. But that being said, um, I want to just read you this account because I, I feel that it really encapsulates where we want to end this weekend. This is not of my life, but I feel like it's appropriate. This person said, I first learned Monopoly from my grandmother. My grandmother taught me how to play the game. Now, you got to understand my grandmother was a wonderful person. In fact, she raised six children and she was a widow by the time I knew her very well. She was a lovely woman, but my grandmother was the most ruthless Monopoly player I've ever met. Now, you have to understand that my grandmother knew something about the game and that was she knew that the name of the game is you must acquire, acquire, acquire. So when we would play, and I was just a little kid, I would get all my money from the bank, and I would just love having all this money that I owned. I would want to save it. I would want to hang on to it because it was just so much fun to have money. But my grandmother, uh uh-uh. She spent money on everything she landed on. And then she would mortgage what she had just so she could buy more. She would accumulate everything she could, and eventually she would become master of the whole board. Every time I landed, I would have to pay her money. And eventually, every time, my grandmother would take my last dollar and I would quit in utter defeat. Then, the part I hated, she'd say the same thing to me every time. She'd look at me and she'd say, one day, you'll learn to play the game. (laughs) I hated it. But then one summer, 
I played Monopoly with a neighbor friend of mine. We played almost every day and almost all day on those days. We played Monopoly for hours on end. And that summer, you know, I learned to play the game. I came to understand that the only way to win Monopoly is to make a total commitment to acquisition. I came to understand that money and possessions, that's the way you keep score. So by the end of that summer, I was more ruthless than my grandmother. I still remember exactly how it happened. I invited her to play at the board. And that day as we played, slowly, cunningly, I exposed my grandmother's vulnerability. Relentlessly and inexorably, I drove my grandmother off the board. The game does weird things to you, okay? But I can still remember it happened at Marvin Gardens. I looked at my grandmother. She taught me how to play the game. She was an old lady by now. She was a widow. She had raised my mom. She loved my mom. She loved me. (laughs) I took everything she had. I destroyed my grandmother financially and psychologically, and I watched her give her last dollar and quit in utter defeat. (laughs) It was the greatest moment of my life. But then my grandma had one more thing to teach me. She said, now it all goes back in the box. All those houses, all those hotels, all those railroad and utility companies, all that property, all that wonderful money, it all goes back in the box. Now, now, I didn't want to go back to the box. I wanted to bronze the board over and leave it as a memory, as a monument to my ability to play the game. But she said, no, none of it was yours. You got all heated up for a while, but this game was around a long time before you came to the board, and it's going to be around a long time after you leave the board. Players come and players go, but it all goes back into the box. And my friends... That's how the game always ends for every player. Every day you pick up a newspaper and you can read a section for whom the game ended this week. It describes these players, skilled businessmen, an aging grandmother in a convalescent home with a brain tumor, teenage kids who think they have their whole life in front of them and somebody goes through a stop sign. And it all goes back in the box. Houses, cars, titles, clothes, Filled barns, bulging portfolios, even your body. It all goes back in the box. See, that's not to be discouraging. It's to understand eternity. We live in a very brief moment called time. And that is why we must seize the opportunity. That's why we must see the victory (laughs) Accept the victory in Jesus Christ, live in that victory, and set our minds that we will run until we see his face. Don't grow weary. You're more than conquerors through him who loved you if you belong to Jesus Christ. If you don't, my friends, you're on the losing side. Hell was never created for you. It was created for Satan and his angels, but... You choose to reject God. You choose to reject his presence forever. 
I want to encourage myself. I want to encourage you. As we part ways, and who knows, only the Lord knows, the next time I will see you. Keep running. I leave you with the words that Paul left with the church at Corinth in chapter 15 of his first epistle, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Listen, it says nothing about expectations. Knowing, knowing, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He said, strike the ground. Don't stop until you have no more arrows left to use. It'll be worth it all. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we in Jesus Christ live in victory. We live in the victory already won for us at the cross of Calvary and at an empty tomb. Thank you for the promise that you will come again soon and that we will be forever with the Lord. But Lord, I I just ask that we would not please spare us from the ending of hearing you could have then you would have but you didn't so you won't Lord I pray for lives in this room that are invested into eternity knowing that the things of this world they all go back in the box but what's done for you will last forever help us oh God In the name of Jesus Christ, I do pray. Amen.